Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, Bill Press Pod regulars, and welcome to all of you newcomers to the podcast. It's Friday. Time for our Reporters' Roundtable, where we look back at the major stories of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters, and what a week it's been. It was gut-wrenching, but it came as no real surprise. For days, the Pentagon and the President himself had been warning that the ISIS-K organization might launch a terrorist attack at the Kabul airport to undermine both the U.S. military and the Taliban, and on Thursday, they did. Will the deadly ISIS-K attack derail the U.S. evacuation process from Afghanistan? Will the U.S. respond? And and does this destroy any credit that Biden might have gotten for ending the war? On the home front, whenever they were asked how the House could ever convince progressive Democrats and moderate Democrats to come together and support both the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion budget bill, White House officials merely said, "Ah, we trust Speaker Nancy Pelosi to get it done. And she did. Now the big question is, can, can Chuck Schumer deliver enough Democratic votes in the Senate? Meanwhile, all eyes on Vice President Kamala Harris's maiden goodwill mission to Southeast Asia. How'd she do? Time for today's panel to weigh in. Maya King, national political editor for Politico, a political reporter for Politico. I didn't mean to give you a um, a promotion there, Maya. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. No, thanks for that promotion, Bill. (laughs) Jason Dick, who is deputy editor of CQ Roll Call. Hi, Jason. Good morning, everybody. And John Bennett, contributing editor at CQ Roll Call as well. Hello, John. Hello, Bill. Good morning. Yes. So uh, let's jump right in. I I, want to offer a caveat first, uh, because we're dealing, certainly, when we're talking about Afghanistan with a very serious situation, perhaps an unnecessary caveat that none of us are military officials or military strategists to make decisions concerning military. But we do cover the White House and the Congress and the Pentagon and those who do make those decisions. So uh, in that capacity, we offer today our insights into these latest threats, latest events, and what it means for the administration uh, and for the nation as a whole. That being said, uh, as Michael Shear leads his story in the New York Times this morning, quote, it was exactly what President Biden feared the most, that attack yesterday morning that left 13 Marines the latest count, some 95 Afghan civilians dead, uh, hundreds wounded. Uh, it was what Joe Biden feared the most and what he really hoped to avoid. Uh, he spoke yesterday in the East Room of the White House, um, showing his determination to both finish the job 
and to find and punish those responsible. Here's the president. To those who carried out this attack, we will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I'd like to ask each of you, how do you think uh, Joe Biden has handled this uh, this attack on the United States, basically? Jason, start with you. Well, I mean, I think this speech right there, I mean, that is as as good as he could have asked for. Um, you know, one of Biden's strengths is that he does, he does manage to sort of project some empathy here. But he really has um, no control over the images that are coming, you know, in. I mean, th- this is a situation that is increasingly chaotic. And regardless of how many people are, you know, are evacuated, I mean, there's always going to be a, a piece of bad news, you know, lurking around the corner. Uh, this is Afghanistan. This is, um, you know, been a, a thorn in the world side for more than a century. Just ask the British, just ask the former Soviet Union. Um, and it, it really is, I mean, it, as calm as he can project and as efficiently as they can get people out now, I mean, the images are things that people will be stuck with, and he just has to sort of hold his breath and, and wait until, you know, things are, the coast is clear, so to speak. Yeah, Maya, uh, Biden's handling of this, he has been in front of the cameras just about every day this week uh, on Afghanistan. Yeah, and I think, you know, before the question that a lot of people were asking was whether or not it was a good decision around the timing um, to to get out of Afghanistan. But now it feels more like what people are asking and what, what Biden is having to answer for now is, you know, what do we do um, and how do we handle this and how does this administration handle especially the optics um, and do damage control around this catastrophe? This is obviously also very personal for the president. Bo served in Iraq, um, his son. And so I think that's also going into why he's had to, I mean, he's obviously had to answer to this because it's just the biggest story of the last few weeks. But I think that this is also something that he really does take personally. And that's something that he said. Um, and so, you know, it's it's probably one of the, the lowest points, if not the darkest points of his presidency thus far. And I think that's also why you see him so publicly answering and, and really, I think, conveying a fair amount of honesty and, and just candor with this and saying this was probably, it's very clear now that this was a, a much bigger um, moment, I think, than they than they once anticipated. John Ben, uh, like your take too. One thing that struck me was how deeply into the details of this Joe Biden was. Yes, showed yesterday. Well, sure, uh, he was in the details. He's been involved in these these matters for decades as vice president, of course. Before that, as as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So I wasn't shocked to hear that that Joe Biden had, you know, a grasp on the details, and and he certainly from time to time can be a bit flighty. Uh, but you know, he was he was on point yesterday, and he was somber and and all that. But you know, somebody's got to play the heavy here, so I'll do it. Um, his words yesterday, the the clip you played, rang a bit hollow for me. Maybe after twenty years of a president saying such things and. I covered defense and and the military uh, for years, and hearing generals and colonels and on down, you know, make such words over the years. When I heard President Biden say that yesterday, I turned to my television and I said, "How, Joe?" Um, 
you're 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 taking. I'm not saying that 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 the United States should should stay past next Friday. Don't don't get me wrong, but to make a pledge like that, you're not going to have human intelligence assets on the ground. You're not going to be tracking these guys. You're not going to have the military in there very long. Last night there were explosions in Kabul because U.S. forces are destroying um, what what platforms the Taliban. Um, doesn't already have the Taliban. They're doing donuts at Bagram, in in Black Hawk helicopters. So, so you know, I know drone strikes and and satellites and all of that. But the way you track these guys and the way you usually find these cells and and their commanders is human assets on the ground, intelligence assets. They're not going to be there. So, and it usually takes a matter of weeks or months. Usually months to retaliate for these things. It takes time to piece it together. And I just don't see how he's going to be able to deliver on that promise. Uh, Jason, on that point, um, isn't it possible that the Taliban could be the uh, some of the human intelligence we need to find ISIS IK, IK, uh, K? And, and also, the president yesterday indicated, we don't have that clip, when he said, we're not talking about sending troops in to find them. You know, like basically, we have other methods, right? Meaning, special forces. I think. Yeah, and I mean, and this is again, this is some of the same stuff that we're we've been dealing with with for years, right? Like how how much engagement do we have? I mean, you know, pr the former president Donald Trump was criticized um, for dealing with the Taliban directly in in negotiating this uh, this this leave. You know, like our our, uh, you know, departure from Afghanistan. This is something that uh, some of the uh, critics of the, of the president tend to leave out <laughs> is is Trump's part in this. Uh, and Trump has, of course, been you know, talking about how how great things would be going if he was running things still. Um, so it is possible that there is some cooperation. But I don't know. I mean, like the if I'm a if I'm a U.S. intelligence officer uh, or somebody in the Pentagon, I'm very skeptical of working with people in the Taliban uh, because yeah. they're they're not really um, they have proven themselves to be pretty nasty characters over the years. And um, I, I, I think that that could be a potentially fraught relationship. Um, I mean, and we're also. You know, when we're talking about the number of troops that were on the ground um, up, up until we started evacuating people from the base, I mean, this is a, we've only had about 2,500 or so U.S. troops there. So we're already at a skeleton crew of of cooperation and, and engagement. So it, it, this, uh, as you said at the top, Bill, and as, as John Zard hinted at, this is these are exactly the sort of problems that Biden wanted to avoid. He wanted just out. And, you know, this is the problem. There is no out. <laughs> yeah, or no uh clean, orderly way, maybe, of getting out. Uh, and Maya, well, do, you, do you believe can that? I just, Bill, can I just, Sorry. Yes, can I just John, add one yeah, thing? Of course. The, the, the alter one alternative to getting, using um, on-the-ground intelligence from the Taliban would be to depend on the Pakistanis. Yes. And, and, and three, maybe four presidents, probably all four presidents since 9-11 have been burned from time to time by the Pakistanis. So there's just no good option uh, to get intelligence unless you're on the ground. But when you're on the ground, we've seen for 20 years all the problems and challenges that come with that. Yeah, I think most of us would trust the Pakistanis less than we would trust the uh, the Taliban, perhaps. Uh, Maya, the key question is, we're looking at a deadline set by the president of August 31. Does this terrorist attack yesterday 
make it more or less likely that we will have finished the job and be out by uh, August 31. What's your opinion? Well, I think that either way, um, I think I think all of the administration officials and everyone who was in Biden's circle, including Biden himself, remain very committed to getting out by August 31st, regardless of what happens. The other deadline that I'm looking at really is September 11th. It's not a deadline, I should clarify, but I think, you know, going into um, this evacuation from Afghanistan, I think that the, th- the thinking um, among many in the administration was that if this were to be a much cleaner situation, which it's proven not to be, September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist mm-hmm. attacks would be a really joy. It would it would really create it would shine a brighter light um, on that 20th anniversary. And now I think that we're looking at that day a little bit differently. In fact, I, I would argue that it's cast a shadow very much over that 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 um, particular anniversary. So that's really what's been on my mind at this, at this juncture. I think August 31st, it's pretty clear they're not budging on that. But how the uh, administration and how I think we as just American people will be able to frame that that anniversary in the next few weeks um, is going to be very deeply affected, obviously, by the events just of the last couple of days. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, and uh, there's no way I believe that this whole thing will be resolved by September 11th. So that cloud will still be hanging over us. One thing, however, the president wanted to make clear yesterday. John, let me come back to you. He wanted to make clear that whatever happened, as bad as it is, as heartbreaking as it is, as gut-wrenching as it is, he still believes uh, that he made the right decision in ending the war here, President Biden. I have never been of the view that we should be sacrificing American lives to try to establish a democratic government in Afghanistan a country that has never once in its entire history been a united country. Not going to change his mind about that, John. Uh, And that seems to be what most Americans believe. Right. He's not going to send U.S. troops. I believe Jason already said that. He's President Biden's not going to send U.S. troops back in there. Um, You know, he said yesterday that he's told the generals, you know, if they need more more bodies or, or resources, between uh, now and the 31st, um, they can have them. I don't get the sense that that there's going to be a surge of 2,500 U.S. troops to Karzai International Airport. Um, but you know, the president the president knows the polling on this. He's 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 examined the polls closer than probably any of us. Gone deeper into the polls on this issue uh, than any of us, and he feels this in his bones. He. Uh, as vice president, advised President Obama against uh, the the surge early in the Obama administration. Um, you know, he was opposed to the Abbottabad raid into Pakistan that ended up uh, killing Osama bin Laden. Um, he turned against the Afghan effort uh, fairly early, especially after bin Laden died. He felt that the conflict had just run its course and that the U.S. couldn't really do anything else there, and it was up to the Afghans to, to solve their own civil war. He believed that a few weeks ago when he made the, a few months ago when he made the decision. And, you know, I do think that is a presidential moment for Biden, um, where he's, mm-hmm. he's sticking by, uh, by his core beliefs. Um, 
Now, the politics of Afghanistan have always been a bit tricky. I don't know if any national U.S. politician has been voted out of office because of his or her stance on the on the Afghanistan war. Um, you know how fickle we are in the media and just just in, you know, we all have phones with alerts and Twitter. Um, two weeks from now, I suspect we'll be on to something else. So I'm sure President Trump and other Republicans will make this a campaign issue. Um, but I do think politically, uh, the president can come back from this. He's going to have to deal with it in, in the election in 2024. Um, but I do think he can come back. From this. Uh, and midterms of 2022, for sure. Uh, on that point, uh, Jason, uh, the politicians, some of them, haven't waited until 2022 or 2024. Even yesterday, uh, there were voices, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and, and, and some others, uh, talking about impeaching Biden over the uh, terrorist attack at the airport. Uh, invoking the 25th Amendment because clearly they said he wasn't in charge. Is, is, I mean, just politically, as absurd as that is, it, it, doesn't this kind of go counter to in the middle of a war attacking the president, the commander in chief for conduct of the war? Yes, I mean, but it's this a little is risky, isn't it? I yeah, mean, th th this is where we're at, though. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think I do really think that the, we are in a place where. We're going to see for a while just impeachment resolutions thrown out and, and possibly even people impeached. Um, you know, our, our colleague Paul Kane at The Washington Post wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, saying that we we may be in the era of uh, perpetual impeachments and, and then they just go to die in, in the Senate after, you know, sort of pro forma yeah. trials and, and impeachment resolutions may come to sort of resemble censure resolutions now. Um, because, and, and really I mean, what it comes down to is it's just a lot easier than legislating. I mean, you take up a big chunk of time, you know, with, uh, with impeachment, uh, hearings and, and votes and so forth. And, you know, for Marjorie Taylor Greene, what does she care? She doesn't even have any committees. So it's, it's easy for her to say that. Uh, and I, I apologize for being kind of glib on it, but I, I would expect that, you know, if if Republicans were to, to retake the majority in the House after the 2022 elections, they'll wait about, I don't know, five minutes before filing somebody, somebody filing the first impeachment resolution against uh, against Biden for and they'll they'll have some they'll have some excuse, whether it's Afghanistan or, you know, his, uh, you know, the, what they think is his lack of mental acuity or he was, you know, banished one of his dogs to Delaware. I mean, they'll, they'll pick something. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. Not to, not to uh, spend too much time on Afghanistan, but it is important. But three other points I wanted to uh, ask, and each of you can, can weigh in. Uh, I'll direct them to, to one of you, and each of you weigh in if you'd like to. Um, Maya, let's start with, uh, we haven't even mentioned, right, in the middle of all of this, over 100,000 people, probably 110,000 by now, have been evacuated by the U.S. military from Afghanistan, which will go down in history so far as the largest, biggest, most successful airlift in history. Um, will Biden ever get any credit for that? Um, if his if his communications folks in the administration um, have anything to say about it, I'm sure that we'll be bringing that up more often as a talking point. But it's it just does gotten, get lost, doesn't it? I, I was just going to say it's just gotten lost when you look at 
everything else that's that's happening, not just in Afghanistan, but domestically. And I think that um, in this kind of echo chamber of, of talking about all of these different issues, to say nothing of yesterday's attacks, it's really hard to focus on really what a remarkable, um, I would say, humanitarian effort has been underway um, in Afghanistan at this point. It's just hard to focus on that in the face of, of, of everything else going on. But I don't know, perhaps when, when the dust settles, or maybe that's, maybe that's the 9-11 talking point, right? And on the anniversary of, of the 20th, on the 20th anniversary that they can actually have something to point to, to say, this is how far we've come. But I don't know, just throwing that out there. Yeah. Uh, and related to that issue, John Bennett, is where do all these refugees go? And on that point, um, the Republican Party is, is is split. You know, Steve Miller, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene, hate to keep mentioning her, is saying, oh, it's great to get them out, but boy, we don't want them here. We can't afford them here. Uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox, Laura Ingram on Fox have been have been saying the same thing. Um, so we, we, we show the humanitarian effort and get them out, and then we slam the door? That is the Republican Party stance right now. You you beat me to it. I was going to say, um, I was going to advise your listeners against listening or watching Fox primetime uh, when they're talking about this issue, because as you alluded to, Tucker, Sean, and Laura will twist your brain into knots from segment to segment, really minute to minute, when you know they're they're just slamming Biden for not getting more uh, Afghan allies out, even though, as has been said here. It has been a really efficient once once the administration and the military uh, got up to speed and got organized and got enough troops there and enough planes there. It has been really impressive and they've gotten over 100,000 folks out. So that's great. Um, but but the Republican stance is exactly that. Uh, Biden, Biden can't Biden will never get enough folks out for the conservatives and they do not want them in uh, anywhere in America. I believe uh, it was it was a former aide to uh, uh, former Vice President Pence who has been making the rounds this week, uh, talking about Stephen Miller. Of course, was um, really the closest policy advisor, domestic policy advisor to President Trump. Would be in meetings uh, during the Trump administration where they were talk about this. They would talk about how would we get out, what would we do with with Afghan allies. And Stephen Miller um, would would say to the president and others, what do you want little stands and little Iraqs dotted all across the United States? And as we learned over four years, I hope we learned, Stephen Miller no longer represents the fringe of the Republican Party. He represents their core beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, J uh, Jason, final point here on Afghanistan. While uh, hundreds of thousands are trying to get out, uh, there were two people this week who wanted to get in and did get in. Two members of Congress, Seth Moulton and Peter Meyer, um, made their way to Afghanistan. Uh, it turned out to be one issue on which both Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi have agreed upon. Maybe in the last five years, here's Nancy Pelosi's comment the resources necessary to facilitate their visit and to protect them was an opportunity cost of, of what we needed to do to be evacuating as many people as possible. There's a call on our resources diplomatically, politically, uh, militarily and the rest. This is 
deadly serious. So what did they uh, what did they accomplish by this, Jason? Um, I mean, not not to speak for them, but certainly their uh, the the the, the Meyer Moulton you know sort of statement after this after they returned was that we have a duty as members of Congress as veterans also like to to see uh, what's going on firsthand to conduct oversight. Um, as you know, as a journalist, I I get it. I I you know we are you know supposed to to head into the fire, right? Like with the with the people, you know, when 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 things uh, happen like that. Um, certainly, the speaker and the minority leader and and everybody who was directed to try to figure out what to do with them and to make sure they didn't get shot uh, it was uh, has a different point of view there. And this is, you know, an extremely unstable and, and dangerous kind of situation. But I mean, I, I, I would give the benefit of the doubt to, to these members. I mean, like they're, they do, I think that they came from good intentions that did have an effect, um, you know, that, that they, they had to be, have security provided for them and so forth. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs exactly of, of exactly how they got there. I mean, like somebody, somebody else would have had to know this couldn't have completely, uh, count, uh, come as a, a surprise to everybody uh, in in the chain of command, but I I'm 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 of mixed you know sort of views on this because the, I mean we do need people on the ground to see what's happening with their own eyes um, and and sometimes that includes members of, of of Congress, but I do acknowledge that you know this is a hassle for somebody to have to to make sure that these guys come out in one piece so. I get it, but I also think yes, they they're members and they they want to see things for their own eyes, and that's somewhat admirable, I guess. <laughs> uh, for the record, I would disagree. I think it was stupid and selfish of them to go, and uh, and they did they accomplished nothing other nothing other than getting in the way uh, and taking the time because, uh, with all due respect, Jason, members of Congress get a little bit more security, a little bit more attention, uh, military flights, military helicopters. That you as a journalist would never get right. So you got to <laughs> you got to admit that. All right. On that point, let's take a quick break and look at some of the other news of the week here uh, on today's uh, roundtable. Uh, we'll take a quick pause and be back with our panelists, John Bennett, Jason Dick, and Mike King. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. The great men and women of the Teamsters Union under President Jim Hoffa, they are our largest and most diverse of all the labor unions, one and a half million members strong, representing every aspect of the American workforce from vegetable workers in California to construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in Milwaukee, of course, and bakery workers in Maine, covering everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. The Teamsters, check out their website at teamster.org. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's Roundtable. John Bennett uh, and Jason Dick, both from CQ Roll Call, Maya King from Politico. So the big showdown in the House, the House came back from their uh, summer break to tackle the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the big $3.5 trillion budget bill. Progressive says we're not going to vote on uh, the bipartisan bill unless you let us vote on the budget bill first. The moderate says we're not going to vote on the bipartisan bill unless you vote on the I mean, the other way around, we're not going to vote on the budget unless you let us vote on the bipartisan bill first. Nancy Pelosi was faced with this. And guess what? She got them all together. Uh, Maya King, what's this tell us about Nancy Pelosi? Well, I mean, this is what she does, right? She's able to kind of bridge the gap between both sides or all of the, the different players in her party. I think if we were talking maybe in the middle of last week, things look a little bit shaky, whether or not she'd actually be able to pull this off, especially um, as moderates were really flexing their muscle to say that they really wouldn't sign off um, on this budget bill. And it was really uh, the way that I interpreted this was a matter of timing. I think that moderates were very fearful that kind of pursuing this two-track um, uh, strategy would actually get in the way of, of their ability to pass this infrastructure plan and that, you know, going out on recess would kind of get in the way of all of this. But in fact, um, that kind of the timing actually ended up, I think, working in Pelosi's favor, being able to wear these folks down, assure them that they would get what they wanted. And I guess, um, as you pointed out at the, at the top of this of the show, really now the ball is in Chuck Schumer's court whether or not he'll be able to kind of work the same magic in the Senate to not only pass this, but actually get this out um, to the American people. How do you read the chances from here on, uh, here on, John, uh, for, for both of these? I think they'll find a way. I think it will be noisy and there'll <laughs> of be more course. of these. Yeah, it'll be definitely be noisy, but it'll be a different kind of noisy because it will mostly be uh, Democrat on Democrat crime. Uh, Pelosi will. Um, yeah, I, I tweeted the other night or the other morning. I don't know. This week is all one big flash. 
of bad news and noise um, that, you know, I'm shocked that Nancy Pelosi took a temporary hit so she could score a victory less than 24 hours later. She tends to find a way. She lets everyone blow off steam. She lets her people fight amongst themselves for a little while. And then they go uh, behind closed doors or I guess maybe on Zoom these days. And she finds a way with along with uh, with the majority leader, uh, Steny Hoyer. They find a way to get the votes. They find a way to, to let everyone save enough face and they push it through. I do think it's going to take most of the month to get this done, maybe even into October. Uh, but I, I think they find a way. I think Pelosi, you know, she likes to tell us she's a master legislator. And uh, I think she'll she'll prove that again. And she'll let us know yet again that she is. Yeah. And uh, every time something like this happens, people uh, uh, underestimate Nancy Pelosi. We've seen that happen. Do, they do. I'm, I'm always shocked at the coverage that Pelosi's yeah. on the ropes. Pelosi's down and out. And then less than 24 hours later, she's standing there mocking all of us. And, and maybe she should. Uh, so, so Jason, we talked uh, in the first half of the of the program here about Joe Biden on the on the uh, far, foreign affair on the international front, let's say, and, and how uh, the war in Afghanistan may impact his political career or future or legacy. Um, if you look at the domestic front here, if and I know these are big ifs, but the president already got the stimulus uh, package early in the year for for to deal with COVID. If he succeeds in getting through with Nancy's help, this bipartisan infrastructure deal, $1.2 trillion, and the humanitarian infrastructure or the budget deal, $3.5 trillion. If you add the three of those, that's a hell of an accomplishment for a first-term president. And it, it is. Yeah, it, it's, it is a big, as, as he himself may say, it was a big <laughs> effing deal, right? Yeah. Um, it, it would be. Um, I mean, it is. And I think I, I do think, you know, John's right. September is going to be messy. Uh, we are all bracing for what's going to be a very um, long and arduous uh, legislative month. Um, let's not also forget that they 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 need to pass, you know, f uh, bills to just fund the, the government uh, by September 30th. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, there's uh, that, too. <laughs> there's that, too. Um, but. But I think that especially coming off of, you know, the fits and starts of of this month and then, you know, the uh, kind of this unfolding situation in Afghanistan and its aftermath, um, something tells me the president's people uh, are going to be pushing very hard to get the infrastructure package out as soon as they can so they can start to change some of the conversation there. And, and again, this is a gigantic investment in the in the country's resources. I mean, infrastructure yeah. week used to be just a punchline joke, you know, and, and now it's like sort of on the cusp uh, because they do have a date certain for a vote. So I, I think that that's going to happen. It is not going to be easy and people are going to lose a lot of sleep. Um, and, you know, as far as the, 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 last part of the, the package is the $3.5 trillion, you know, sort of broader soft infrastructure, people are calling it that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, centers around climate change and healthcare and education uh, and the social safety net. I mean, the, the, the last time we did this, you know, it was uh, this reconciliation process like in this manner, it was when the Republicans were in control and they were, they were pushing for tax cuts. They, this lasted until the end of the year, um, you know, in, in, in 2017. So they have a little bit of a cushion. It just seems like everything is amplified right now. So I, I think that they're going to get a lot of, a lot, if not all of this done. Yeah. Uh, and one final, just one final uh, little event of the week before we move on to your favorite story of the week. 
the vice president, while all this was going on in Washington, she was off on a uh, sort of a maiden diplomatic mission to Southeast Asia, stopping in Singapore and Vietnam, was supposed to stop in California on the way back, uh, canceled that uh, uh, fundraiser for Governor Gavin Newsom in the recall election uh, in order to get back to Washington due to the uh, uh, terrorist attack in Afghanistan. Uh, based, she got a lot of criticism for the trip uh, from Republicans. Um, but Maya King, overall, how'd she do? Well, I mean, considering everything that was um, that was swirling around this trip that had like nothing to do with it, <laughs> um, thinking about Afghanistan in particular, which was really where she was peppered with the most questions, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, it was really more of a diplomatic mission, one to establish, um, you know, the American presence in the East and kind of continue to counter the influence of China. I mean, I think that she that she did a, a, a good job and that it was really just. Um, you know, she was doing what was what she was asked to do on this trip. Um, it didn't seem like outside of that kind of mysterious um, delay in her in her actual trip to Hanoi that I think had to do with some mysterious illnesses in Vietnam. Um, outside of that, it, it just seemed like a very straightforward trip, but at the same time reminded me of just what a really tough portfolio the vice president has, because again, this seems like a pretty mundane trip, but while she was there, was being peppered with questions about Afghanistan as part of the administration that she is the vice president of, was supposed to go to California, her home state, to help with this increasingly difficult recall election. As this is happening, there's still the conversation around voting rights, like that's another part of her portfolio. So as mm -hmm. all this was happening, I just couldn't help but think like, this the vice president just has a lot going on that hasn't really been i don't think made very public like that hasn't really been something that her office has really weighed in on yet but it seems like there's just really a lot swirling around her um at this moment uh john bennett isn't she uh won't she always be a target of criticism of from republicans just because of who she is and what she might be doing in 2020 24 Always, absolutely. Uh, I talked to a colleague who works at a right-leaning publication uh, this week who said, um, you know, they write, this is one of the conundrums for me about conservative media um, after having been in it for a few months. Uh, they write stories both, uh, as the publication I once worked for did, that Kamala Harris is the Wizard of Oz she is calling the shots from uh, behind some curtain in the West Wing, uh, but also uh, Kamala Harris is incompetent and bungles everything she touches. So, yeah, and, and they do that to, to cast her as this sinister behind-the-scenes force who Joe Biden's just a puppet that she's dangling around, but also uh, she couldn't manage a lemonade stand in the desert uh, and that, that that's pretty much their narrative. They're going to stick to it. Um, you know, she didn't mess up on this trip. She didn't do anything major, um, which is now her bar, but she helped set that bar uh, with her uneven performance uh, early in the administration. Her trip uh, to Central America uh, didn't go as planned, shall we say. So she cleared a low bar, but, you know, that bar is going to get higher and higher as we get close to 2024, especially if President Biden decides um, to step aside. She is the heir apparent. Well, and, and that's that's what it all boils down to, doesn't it, Jason? Is that she, 
she becomes a favorite target because Joe Biden has been kind of a hot, hard target for them to go after. Yes, I mean, you know, Biden has remained um, popular. You know, I mean, he has the, you know, the, the the history and is able to sort of bridge a lot of the divides in the Democratic coalition. And you know, she is the the future, you know, of the of the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democratic Party is is you know the 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 primary components, you know, like going forward too are you know it's it's a diverse coalition and it is a coalition of, of women and you know and it's young yeah. <laughs> and she is all those she's all three um and and so their their interest is in tearing her down uh before yeah. she's able to get any kind of traction right okay great job uh looking at the three big stories of the week uh, there's a lot more we could have gotten to but in the interest of time let's move right into we always say with all the things that we're covering uh, there's one thing that stops us in our tracks and say, oh, my God, how about that? It can be serious. It can be funny. It's our favorite story of the week. Maya, what caught your attention? Yeah, so the story that I brought is actually a story from May, but came across my timeline um, this week. From, <laughs> <Okay>. from, <laughs> it's from Eater, and it's called A Safe Place to Fill Up. And Ooh. it's a really great story about, I don't know if you guys have traveled across the South by car at all, but I'm from Tallahassee, which is just Florida and Georgia. So a lot of this happens where there's really, really good food at gas stations. I mean, like <laughs> fresh, really good Southern food, biscuits, fried chicken, <laughs> macaroni and cheese. Like it, it might sound a little bit weird that you would stop at a gas station and get like a really good meal, but you can in the South. And um, it has its origins, I learned through this story, actually, in, in Black history and a lot of Black drivers not being able to eat in mm. restaurants or being able to yeah. stop places. Huh. Um, and so a lot of Black-owned gas stations or Black folks who were able to get jobs at gas stations started to make money and really form their livelihoods around providing meals um, for black travelers and that legacy continues today so if you're ever so this is a great story from eater one and if you're ever traveling across the south by car especially in georgia south carolina alabama and you happen to stop at at the right i can give you some some recommendations but if you happen to stop at the right gas station and get a good meal um now you know why yeah, fill a button. By the way, Eater is a great website. If people, uh, if you haven't signed up for it, I think it's free. I might have this. I recall, yes. but uh, it is it great, is. great, great recommendations on uh, places to eat and what to eat. Um, I, I just want to point out if you're in the Washington D.C. area, I would know Royal Farms, which, by the way, does sell gas. <laughs> but the Royal, <laughs> the Royal Farms outlets, they have the best fried chicken in the whole world. I just yeah. throw that out there. <laughs> from my Jason, you just drove across the country. Uh, did you and Fawn uh, fill up at uh, in both ways at gas stations? Uh, we we did. Uh, we, we brought a lot of our own food too because we just weren't sure some some of the spots we were going to go. But I I second uh, what, what Maya was saying. I mean, I, I've uh, I've been on some of those long road trips across uh, the South and and particularly the more yeah. the east side of Florida, and it's mm -hmm. it's it can be really great. <laughs> uh, okay, while you're there, what was your favorite story, Jason? So my uh, I, I, maybe I just have the Midwest on my mind uh, from from my trip to Wisconsin and back recently uh, for a wedding. But the uh, Greg Jaffe in the Washington Post has this great story uh, this week uh, about Peoria, Illinois, mm. um, and you know for for people of a certain age, you, you know you, the politicians and the entertainers and so forth would say, "How is it playing in Peoria?" 
and this story is this huge take. It's almost like a magazine piece, uh, but it, w- it was in the post uh, a section about um, this this part of of uh, Peoria, uh, prim- primarily deindustrialized uh, uh, and and working class neighborhood, uh, Lincoln Avenue that has has been depopulated. And the the city, you know, coming across very hard times, you know, like has hasn't even got the budget to demolish the homes. Uh, this is along Lincoln Avenue and so forth. And and uh, but so a lot of these homes have gone into foreclosure or, they, or whether not foreclosure, but into tax lien auctions. And some somewhere along the line, uh, the bulk buyers started getting involved in buying these homes, sometimes for as little as like, you know, a, a couple hundred dollars. Mm. And and other other folks started to and then they wanted to flip them. And so the, the story profiles some of the people who have who have purchased these homes uh, online, sight unseen, with this thought that like, well, I live in a place like that. One, one of them was a, a, a barber uh, in Salt Lake City uh, who, you know, the median house price, you know, there was like $850,000. And he's like, I'm never going to be able to afford that. I'm a barber. You know, I have a family. Uh, and and it it you know, he bought this house, you know, for a few thousand dollars and it was just so run down and so messed up. I mean, like from where mm-hmm. you see like so much of the, you know, like if, if you've ever worked on a house, you know, how they can go, they can deteriorate quickly. And it gets in this, this Jaffe's able to get into issues of race, of history, of deindustrialization, of the American dream, of like what, of kind of con artists getting involved in this. And it's just this really wide swath uh, of, of a story that's just really powerful about people wanting to take a, you know, a, a flyer uh, and, and really it not, a lot of it not working out. It's a really great piece of journalism. I think it's a huge leap of faith to take a flyer in Peoria, uh, Illinois. <laughs> yeah, sounds like sounds like a great story. I didn't see that. John Bennett, how about you? Well, speaking of taking flyers, um, <laughs> I let's go to Dateline, Ashburn, Virginia, where the Washington Football Team. Uh, we knew it had to is. be a sports a sports <laughs> story. You know, I, I broke my streak last time, so I got to. <laughs> I have to start a new one this morning. Uh, the, the Washington football team uh, working out, getting ready for the season, and uh, the, they may take a flyer on a running back who is all of five foot seven. Oof. And out of if you follow mid-major football like I do, you know that there are some really talented players uh, that don't play in Power Five conferences. Uh, Jared Patterson went to the University of Buffalo, which has some of the best uniforms in all the land. But he also led the nation in in rushing the last uh, last season, I believe. Um, he put he yeah he averaged 178 yards in six games last season. He had an eight touchdown game against Kent State, oh. and he looks like he's going to make the Washington Football Team's 53 man roster. So he'll be on the opening day roster. Wow. Looks like they're going to use him as a third down back and. Kind of a change of pace back, probably hmm. uh, work on his pass catching out of the backfield. It's just after this week, I was scrolling down the Washington Post homepage this morning looking for my favorite story of the week because just so much bad news this week. And as I was scrolling, it just hit me that everything this week was just a haymaker of bad news, especially after yesterday in Kabul. And we all love a good American underdog story. And Mr. Patterson is certainly that. 
So while we may not root for the Washington football team and Dan Snyder, we can certainly root for little number 35. Uh, and, and root for the uh, root for the underdog, even if he did sign up for that uh, dreaded Washington football team. Uh, thanks for the positive beat there. I'll go back to uh, some of the negative, but also some of the just kind of weird. My favorite story of the week is what happened out in Michigan uh, just a couple of days ago when a judge in Michigan by the name of uh, Linda Parker uh, she had previously dismissed uh, a lawsuit filed by Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and a couple of the other um, attorneys for Donald Trump, uh, alleging fraud in the Michigan uh, 2020 count. Um, yesterday, uh, this week, she followed up, having already, as I say, a year or so ago, dismissed the lawsuit um, by uh, calling for denouncing the attorneys for filing the lawsuit in the first place and calling for sanctions against them, uh, against Sidney Powell, whom I think is batshit crazy, and uh, Lynn Wood and a, a handful of others, uh, for requiring them to pay legal fees as a punishment for filing the lawsuit and referring all of them to their state bars in the various states where they are licensed uh, for possible disbarment. Um, she said this suit was not, remember that uh, Sidney Powell and others alleged uh, that Dominican voting systems had come up with a, um, a, system, a, a, a voting machine in Venezuela at the request of Hugo Chavez, where they could remotely uh, change the votes that had been cast, changing votes, for example, from Biden, uh, from Trump to Biden, and that they developed this in Venezuela, used the same machine and the same system uh, in Michigan, um, Judge Parker said there was absolutely zero evidence for this. She called it a historic and profound abuse of the judicial process. And she said this uh, lawsuit was never about fraud. It was only a, an attempt to undermine the people's faith in democracy. Uh, now that Rudy Giuliani has already been disbarred in New York, here's another handful of Trump attorneys who may be disbarred in their own states. I just like the story because it sort of proves that uh, there are some standards, after all, maybe no standards for politicians, but there are some standards remaining for lawyers. Um, and I guess that turns out to be good news as well. <laughs> so, uh, John Bennett from CQ Roll Call. Thank you, John, for being with us today. Jason Dick, uh, thank you, Jason, for coming back. Maya King from Politico, good to have you all with us. Uh, great job. Thanks so much to, for your time this morning. And thank you all for listening to the Bill Press Pod and today's roundtable. We'll be back on Tuesday. The next podcast, talking to Philip Bump, ace reporter for The Washington Post, checking in with him about the, all the latest madness out of D.C. that he's been reporting on. Uh, meanwhile, take care of yourself, stay strong, stay safe, have a good weekend. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.